0: Talking a lot about being lights in the darkness, being lights in the darkness. Uh, biblically, we witnesses are like lights. It's a biblical concept. A light is a witness. A witness is a light. You know, Philippians 2:15 says, uh, "We appear as lights in the world among a crooked and perverse generation." So what does it look like to be an effective light in the darkness, a bright and winsome light? As witnesses, um, we, we don't save anybody, right? God does that work, but we can win them to the Lord. We can point them to Christ, and Proverbs 11.30 says, He who is wise wins, wins souls. So we want to be winsome witnesses, and that's what we're going to continue to look at. We started last week in Acts chapter 13 looking at some witnessing principles, and we're just going to keep going with it this week and uh, probably next week, Lord willing. So um, uh, this is a, a pivotal chapter. I want to remind us as we open it up again, Acts chapter 13 is a, just a pivotal, pivotal chapter, not only in Acts, but in the entire um, Luke-Acts narrative, because Luke and the book of Acts go together like two volumes in one story by one author. And it's all about the gospel going to the nations. Light to the Gentiles. And uh, we did a ton of background work last week, and I'm not going to keep repeating that. If you want some more of the background work, uh, go online, listen to the last week's message. But uh, I do want to briefly go over it, I want to note how Luke chapter 2 begins with a man named Simeon in the temple holding baby Jesus in his arms and uh, quoting the prophet Isaiah saying that this child is going to be a light to the Gentiles, and he says, "This this this child is appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel. He's going to be a sign to be opposed. He's going to become like a like a stumbling block uh, to a lot of folks in Israel, a lot of the Hebrew people, the Jews. So." Um, It's interesting, what what we see in Acts 13 is a lot of the Jews becoming opposed to their own Messiah in the gospel, and instead the Gentiles become more receptive, and uh, we'll see that as Paul finishes his sermon, the Gentiles are rejoicing, the Jews are opposing. So, Paul, as well, at the end of Acts chapter 13, uh, says, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. He's commanded us, the Lord, to be a light to the Gentiles, to bring salvation, to the ends of the earth, and so this this Jew and Gentile reception is really highlighted in the first few verses of chapter thirteen. By the way that Saul remember Saul the apostle Saul his Saul's a Hebrew name, and, and Luke starts from here on out to go by his uh, Roman name, which was a pretty common thing in a bilingual, bicultural culture to have a you know a Jew and a Roman or a Gentile name. So. Um, he starts to go by the Apostle Paul, and he becomes the leading Apostle to the Gentiles. The Apostle to the Gentiles, Romans 11.13 says. He, he describes himself as that. Uh, and remember, there were these two characters. Sergius Paulus, the Roman governor, who, who, who when he hears the gospel message, he believes, but the Jewish man the sorcerer named Bar-Jesus, which ironically means son of Jesus, actually is not a son of Jesus. Paul has to call him a son of the devil. And he actually opposes the gospel. And, and he's blinded by Paul, he's, which is significant of his spiritual blindness. He's blinded in his unbelief. So Luke records that, that, that encounter between, with, with Paul and Sergius and Bar-Jesus, because that little encounter is going to become this basically... Uh, the what what Paul's ministry is like, like the rest of his ministry, he's just going to keep encountering opposition to the Jews, and the Jews are opposing him. These Judaizers and the gospel message, and and it's the Gentiles actually who who tend to believe, and so it's just like a little taste of what's going to happen throughout his ministry, and uh, the reaction that we're going to see to the sermon that we're going to study today. We'll look at the reaction uh, next week or the following week. So, um, this is quite the privilege we have here. I don't know if you know this, but what we get to read today, what we get to study today, is Luke's, or sorry, Paul's first recorded sermon in detail. I mean, he's preached before this, obviously, plenty of times, but this is his first sermon in detail. And so, you get a look, you get a look at a lot of, you know, Paul's theology and the way he went about witnessing. And so, we're learning from Paul how to be winsome, strategic, witnesses it's it's great it's great stuff and uh, remember this is in the first missionary journey in the final leg of that uh, great Commission there to reach the uttermost in the you know the the far reaches of the Roman Empire the gospels going beyond Israel into the far reaches of the Roman Empire and we are at Pisidian Antioch which is in Asia Minor what we call Turkey today uh, what would also be Galatian territory, like the book of Galatians. So, let's check out verse 15 and, and read from there uh, through to verse 25. Um, after, reading, after the reading of the law and the prophets, uh, the synagogue officials sent to them saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. And so, Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel... And you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it. For a period of about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. When he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 400 and 50 years. After these things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet, and they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. After he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. From the descendants of this man, David, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. After John had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And while John was completing his course, he kept saying, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he, but behold, one is coming after me, and the sandals of whose feet... I am not worthy to untie, untie. So the outline that I've got for us today to help us kind of navigate this sermon is just a two-part outline of Paul's sermon. So the first thing we see here is Paul reminding them of God's promise to send a Savior, his promise to send a Savior. So in typical fashion, kind of like Peter's message or Stephen's message, Paul traces Jesus through Jewish history and and, and God's guidance of that nation up until Christ actually came. So he's connecting Jesus with the promise to their forefathers. Who's their fathers? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and then he also had to come through who? David. Because God God made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob that the Messiah was going to come through their descendants. Well, eventually it comes down to David, and God reaffirms that promise to David. It's going to come through you, David. So the Messiah is going to come through you, your, your seed. And so uh, the Messiah had to come through their posterity because that was God's promise. And Paul demonstrates that Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. He's the descendant of David, and, and, and uh, that was also supported by the ministry of, of John the Baptist who preceded him just gives further evidence to the fact that Jesus is the one we've been expecting. Uh, Because Israel was a chosen and unique nation for God, Israelites, of all people, understood the importance of repetitively teaching their history because they had expectations. God had been working in their past and they should know how to operate in the present based on their past. So they've been passing the history on. You know in the Shema, that would be Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 8, this, the basic Jewish confession that they would recite uh, every single day. And, and like they would have done at this uh, worship service in the synagogue where Paul's at, they would recite how there is one God, right? Hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love Him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you should pass it on. Right? This is where he gets into, you shall teach them, when you your children, when you sit in your house, when you walk down the road, when you, when you lie down, when you rise up, all day long you should be passing on God and the things of God and our history, of how God is working in our, in our nation, and how, how the Messiah is going to come. Does that make sense? So they, every day they have in mind, I should be teaching the next generation about God. Every day. That's my job. If I don't, if I don't, if I don't, if I can teach them a hundred million things, I can teach them how to be successful, I can teach them how to, you know, I can get them into an Ivy League school, but if I don't teach them about God, I have failed. They recite that every day. That's our job as parents. Not to see our kids be happy and successful, but to teach them about God, and that's where they're gonna find the true happiness, right? So that's that's they see that, that they're as their calling to pass on the knowledge of God and the expectation of the Messiah. And so the recitation of history in Paul's speech and Stephen's speech in, in Acts chapter show, 7 shows us they understood history is important to faith and, and that it's, it's crucial to pass on pass on God God's ways. And I'm looking at my children. I can't help it. You know, that's, that's our job, guys. If you're going to be a winsome witness, a, a light for God in the world... Teach the next generation. That's not even a point in your outline. That just hit me. I can't quit looking at my kids. Teach your kids. Instruct them in the ways of the Lord. That's your calling. In order to exercise faith intelligently today, we need to know how God has worked in the past, right? We need to know what He expects of us based on what He's already shown us. This is an excellent witnessing principle for us uh, because... I literally, one of the first things I did when I woke up, I looked at my phone, right? And, and uh, I was reminded through this cross-examined ministry how people try to use history to distort and discredit the gospel. Church history. That's why it's important to know church history. Lights have to connect Jesus with true biblical history because so in, in, in refuting false arguments and teaching, we need to connect him with true history. And what I, I guess what I don't mean by that is that you know, we don't have to go through a complete Jewish history lesson with everyone, kind of like, like Paul did here, uh, when we witness. That was a great approach in the synagogue, but probably not with your neighbor, right? right? So uh, Anyway, what I mean by this is that we should go back to Genesis more often ex- and explain why we need a Savior Because Genesis is the foundation for everything in the rest of the Bible. If Genesis isn't true, none of it's true. Who cares, right? And so you wonder why Genesis is so attacked, why evolution is pushed so much down your throats. Every time you turn on a discovery channel, evolution, millions of years, billions of years, right? Over and over and over. You go visit a dinosaur exhibit, This fossils, millions of years old, billions of years old. They're ripping out the foundation of everything as we know it. And they're ripping out the foundation of society. So, without understanding God's historical works and promises, the faith makes no sense, does it? Why should I trust in Jesus as my Savior if I don't see my need for one? If I don't understand what's wrong with me? If I don't understand that I'm a sinner who fell? I'm a fallen sinner. Right? So... Most people in our society believe in evolution, that, that there's no God, right? Because they've forgotten God. They've forgotten what else? They don't understand who man is. You don't understand anthropology. You don't know who you are. This is why we can't decide what a man and a woman is today. Okay? <laughs> if you forget God, you forget who man is. Because you only define man in light of who God is and what God says man is. So... If you want to really know what's wrong with the world, it's because we've lost sight of God. It's so bad that we've gotten to that point. We don't even know what a man or woman is. Everything rests on on origins. The gospel rests on on origins. You go back to Genesis, right? More and more, though, guys, we're we're living and dealing with an unchurched culture. I think I feel like Billy Graham had it easy because at least when he preached he was preaching a lot to people who at least grew up in church you know most people actually went to church whether they were nominal or whatever it was like it was a beneficial thing to go to church a businessman would go to church just to meet you know just to do business or something but now it's not it's not advantageous anymore right because it's becoming a you know uh, you know that's that's like church is bad type of thing so it's really not helpful in our culture anymore so people don't come to church like more and more guys we're we're finding that we have to start from scratch in our witnessing to people that there's a lot of folks out there who just have have they don't they don't have an understanding of God they don't they don't they don't know anything about their bibles they don't understand creation anything like that what what's written in genesis why jesus had to come so we've got to keep returning to the beginning and tracing that promise of the Savior. What I tend to do is, I tend to start in Genesis when I witness with people. If I'm really, you know, just straightforward, hey, can I share the gospel with you? And they say, Yeah, where do you, you know where I go? I go to the Garden of Eden. And I say, This is what God longs for. Genesis one and two. He longs for a relationship with you in paradise. But we all know this world ain't paradise, right? And we all know that we have a broken relationship with God. Why is that? Well, Genesis chapter three, man fell into sin. He disobeyed God, and creation fell with it, right? And so then I, I, I like to show them Genesis 3.15. You know what? Right there, right when man fell into sin, God made a promise that he was going to send a Savior to fix this sin problem. You know what we celebrate at Christmas? A lot of, like, at least most of the world can relate to Christmas, right? You know what we celebrate at Christmas? That promise being realized. God sent that Savior finally. And you know what we celebrate at Easter? That Savior who died for our sins to fix the sin problem. So at least our our unchurched world can at least, they understand something about, there's something about Christmas and Easter. Even if they don't understand it totally, that that can be a good lead in. And so that's what I I do. I take people back to to Genesis. Um, It was honestly, you know, Satan knows this, guys, that if people don't, understand god as their creator they're a lot less likely to seek for a redeemer i think it was ken ham who said that the answers in genesis guy if people don't understand they have a creator they're not they're less likely to seek for a redeemer and i can speak to that personally uh in my time as a seeker when i was seeking god reading the bible for the first time that sort of thing um It was this creation element that really made me receptive to the gospel. I was sitting in my deer blind reading a book from one of my coworkers called... uh, He gave it to me when he was done, because I was kind of interested. I was seeking at that time. And it was a book on creation versus evolution. And I'm reading this book, and he's talking about how complex the human body is, that there's nothing more complex than the human body. And he's, he's talking about your hand and how you can move it. You guys have seen me do this a few times, right? You love, you love it. Okay. I love it too. The human body is the most complex thing in this world. And he's describing the human eye and how I can move my hand and do things. And I don't even have to think about it. I just do it. And all of that is happening lightning fast. And you just do it, right? Not a product of random chance, okay? Okay. So, so I begin to absorb the, the fact that I'm a created being, and I'm looking around, and I, I shoot a deer, I harvest a deer, and I'm thanking God, and I'm thinking, well, I haven't done that forever, you know, since I was a kid, because I was at least a little bit raised in church, but um, I did not understand the gospel whatsoever. Um, but I, I, I thank God for that deer, and that was a landmark moment in my life because I'm thinking, oh, wow, I just thanked Him for providing a deer for me. You know, so I began to think if God created me, don't you think that He wants a relationship with me? Right? And so the idea that He would come and die for me started to really blossom. And I learned to accept Christ as my Savior. And God's word proved it God kept His promise kept he keeps his promises guys I've I've uh, about a month ago I went out to ace I've been remodeling my bathroom and uh, I go out to ace and I order an air compressor pancake air compressor brad nailer combo because I'm thinking I need one of these I got a lot of trim work to do and they say it's gonna be here next week (laughs) and so what do I do I go there next Wednesday Truck's coming in on Wednesday. I go to pick it up. It's not there. They say, I give it a, give it another week. So I give it two weeks. I go back, and they, they say, we, we check the status. It's going to be here next Wednesday. And I say, okay. Right? <laughs> and I show up Thursday, <laughs> you know, the next week. And I love Ace. Don't get me wrong. Ace is awesome. And this is out of their control. But I show up the next Thursday, and he just goes like this. As soon as I walk in, he's just like, sorry, it's not here. And I said, I understand. I blame it on 2020, but um, still waiting. It's very disappointing when someone breaks their promise. But guys, God never breaks his promises. He never breaks his promises. There's things, God, God's all powerful, but there's some things he can't do. And one of them is he cannot lie. He cannot, he cannot also, he cannot break his promises. It would go against his nature. And his nature doesn't change. He's immutable. He cannot not break it. he cannot not keep his promises, if that makes sense. And so here, as Paul's going to continue his message, one of the things that Paul does, and you really pick up on this in Romans, is he anticipates questions. Okay, well, if Jesus is the Messiah, where's his kingdom? And why did he die and leave? Remember, what what were the Jews expecting? A Rome-conquering Messiah that's going to establish a kingdom and and oust Rome and, and, you know, just make Jerusalem and Israel the center of the world. Well, if Jesus is the Messiah, that didn't happen, right? Well, there's also other prophecies in the Old Testament about his First coming. His first coming, he's coming to suffer and die for sins. Prophecies about the old, uh, other prophecies are more about the second coming. They had their, well, I would rather have my mind on the second coming too, wouldn't you? I want the Rome conquering, victorious, sword-bearing Messiah, not the humble one on the donkey riding into Jerusalem, you know, and then dying for my sins, uh, naturally. But they didn't understand all of that. And so, Paul's anticipating, their questioning God's fulfillment of the promise, um, Verse 26, we see here. Brethren and sons of Abraham's family, and those among you who fear God, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. And though they found no grounds for putting him to death, because he's the Son of God, he's innocent, they asked Pilate that he be executed. And when they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and they laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses. There it is again. His witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers that God has fulfilled this promise to our children, and that He raised up Jesus. And it is also written in the second psalm You are my son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact that He raised him from the dead, no longer to return to decay, He spoke in this way. Another Old Testament psalm. I'll I'll give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. For David, after he served the purposes of God in his generation, he fell asleep and was laid among his fathers, and he underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins... Is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Pretty powerful stuff, isn't it? What a sermon, Paul. It's a lot shorter than mine. <laughs> but uh, I get to explain his sermon. That's pretty awesome. Paul demonstrates through scripture that it is unmistakably clear. Jesus is the fulfillment. He's the one we've been expecting. Three times, look at what He does. He quotes Scripture, and He shows them prophecies like Psalm 1610, saying, this could not have been fulfilled in David. Why? David's tomb's down the street here, right? Or it's in Israel, right down there. But where's Jesus? He's not in a tomb, is He? The tomb was empty. And... Uh, he, he rose from the dead. Paul knows that the way to the Jewish heart is through the Scriptures. And so he, he talks about how Jesus fulfilled the Scriptures. They, they unknowingly carried out all that was written of Him. And that gives credence to the fact that God did this, right? God fulfilled these prophecies. They didn't even know they were doing it, but they did it anyway. So His crucifixion, Paul is emphasizing wasn't an accident. It was a fulfillment of his promise. Do you see that? These prophecies are written so that you will know that Jesus is the one he, that, that, that we've been expecting. And that leads us to another principle for witnessing, is that lights reason and persuade from Scripture, the, the Word of God. Scripture is, guys, remember this. Mm-hmm. Scripture, reasoning, telling people you're trying to witness to somebody, Right? Scripture, reasoning and persuading from scripture is the most effective way to witness. It's the most effective way to witness. Why? Because, for one, the Spirit of God inspired this book, His Word. God communicates to us through words, and the Holy Spirit inspired this thing. This is not just a book. This is not man's book. This is God's Word, not just man's Word. Second Peter. 121 says prophecy never had its origin in human will, in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we call this the doctrine of inspiration, uh, like a ship that's filled with wind, like a sailboat, right? Uh, that's filled with wind and carried along by the Holy Spirit. So human authors were filled with the Holy Spirit and carried along as they wrote God's Word. And, and, he, and the Spirit of God did it without destroying, without error, for one, and then without destroying the author's literary style and personality. Because you do see there's different personalities who wrote this book, right? So God did it through men. And Paul commends, look at this, the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, for their their understanding and reception of this doctrine of inspiration. He says, "We constantly thank God that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men." Have you ever heard anybody say this is just a book of the man wrote that is full of errors, things like that? And contradictions and guys, this it's not. You got you got to study that out though. You got to get into it. You got to study it. But Paul says this, we, we thank God you received it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is. It's the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Another reason to persuade from Scripture is right there. It performs its work in people. It's powerful. This book is living and active. It has a quality about it that no other book in the world has, even though men have tried to recreate that quality. This book is living and active. It is sharper, Hebrews 4 says, than any two-edged sword. And it pierces, it pierces as far as the division of soul and spirit. Now, there's a lot of comments about the The triune, like like nature of man, body, soul, and spirit, and what man's made of, and we don't know exactly where the distinction between soul and spirit lies. Well, the Word of God does. Look at that. It pierces as far as the division of soul and spirit. It can do that, okay? Uh, Of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's a powerful book. It's alive and active. It brings people to faith transforms them and that's why we stick to the word of God that's why I preach the word of God it's the word of God that that can fix people of their sin and their need for a savior it's really what people need isn't it you remember uh, what Paul charged Timothy with Timothy is a young pastor Timid Timothy and and, uh, Paul says to Timothy preach the word preach the word in the context of a bunch of false teaching that's out there. He says, preach the Word. Why? Because that's what people need. And the Word of God is what, what's going to make, make us adequate as servants of God. He says this, all Scripture is inspired by God. All Scripture. So not just the words in red, and not just part of it, not just Genesis and not Leviticus. or No, all verbal and plenary inspiration from beginning to end. The words are inspired, all of it's inspired. Okay, so Paul says all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Isn't that great? So whenever I read this verse, I cannot help but think of all of the psychology and secular counseling going on out there, right? there's, There's people out there that are really trying to help others. But how are we gonna help people if we don't know the word of God? How are we gonna help people? How are we gonna counsel people if we don't understand the word of God, we don't understand the truth, we don't know how to operate if we don't know the word of God, right? I mean, you don't understand man. You don't understand biblical anthropology. If you don't understand that you don't know how to properly diagnose a man, right? Someone might be saying they're, they're struggling with this. I, I struggle with this lust, and I, I think I'm a boy or a girl. And, and, and the counselor will say, well, you just need to believe in yourself or something like that. What's that going to lead to? It's either going to lead to pride, operating independently of God, or it's gonna, and it's probably going to, after the pride, it's going to result in despair, like this ain't working. Well, why? You don't understand man. You haven't properly diagnosed him. You've got to get to know the Word of God if you want to properly diagnose a man. Man first has to be born again <laughs> by the Spirit, right? You've got to come to faith in Christ. But anyway, um, if we want to help people, if we really want to point people to the hope and the peace and the life that's in Christ, we want to point them on the path to the path of eternal flourishing, eternal purpose, We've got to be men and women of the book, of the Word of God. We've got to give ourselves to the study of the Word of God, not just, not just Pastor Justin, okay? We're, we're to be Bereans, We examine the Scriptures daily. We need to get into the Word of God for ourselves so that we can help others. And, and I'll remind you that I'm, I'm the equipper and you guys are the ministers, you know that, right? My job is to equip you for the ministry. You guys are all ministers. That means you all need to get to know the Word of God. And I'm thankful that that you guys are all about that. But I'm reminding us this morning. So, anyway. Um, another reason here, why Scripture, why it's important to reason and persuade from Scripture is because... Um, when you do, they understand that you're not just forcing your ideas and your beliefs down their throat, okay? And who out there shoves their beliefs down your throat more than atheists, right? <laughs> I always, you kind of hear this, right? Those religious people, they're shoving their beliefs down their my throat. I don't like it. Well, who does that more than anybody, right? The evolutionary atheist does that more than anybody, Uh, they have a belief system, and it's legal in your schools, while yours is not. So, think about that. Um, They are discipling your kids in that school, contrary to what you should be teaching them. But, um, we should witness, guys, I think, in such a way that people see what the Bible says and not just what you have to say. So, what I would suggest when you're witnessing is you take your Bible and you turn it around. And you say, God so loved the world, Jesus died for you so that you can be born again. Whatever it is. And you say, hey, hey, read that verse. Check that out. What does that say? Because you don't want to do all the thinking and processing for them. You want them to see what the word says, right? So, you have them, just, just read that out loud. Tell me what that says. Well, well, it says this. Yeah, what do you think that means? You know? And that way, if, if they get mad, you know, they're going to get mad at the Word of God. Actually, they're less likely to get bad and argumentative. And you're not going to take it personally because you're going to find them arguing with the Word of God and not with you. And it's like, well, you, you can accept, like, man's word or you can accept what this says. So, that's another, another reason. You want them to see what the Word of God has to say. When you're when you're relying on Scripture, you're less likely to take personal offense when they start to argue. And you know, and then uh, another reason is, um, the Word of God is powerful. So I think when they take that in themselves, they read it themselves, they internalize that. Uh, the Word of God is is going to go to work, whether it seems like it is or not. You know, the Word of God is convicting. But okay, let's take note of Paul's. Also, repetition of central truths. Did you guys notice any repeated content in Paul's sermon? He was repeating things, like, put him to death. Like, took him down from the cross, laid him in a tomb. God raised him from the dead. He appeared. He raised up Jesus. He raised him from the dead. So, these are all key gospel truths about Jesus' death and burial and resurrection, and uh, lights are going to proclaim gospel truths like that. Based on observations from all of the witnessing accounts and sermons in the New Testament, it can be said that we cooperate fully or we cooperate the most with the Holy Spirit in witnessing when these key gospel truths are presented to somebody. That means you actually share Jesus died for our sins he was buried and he rose again the third day so that that is throughout the new testament witnessing accounts and sermons people need to know jesus died for their sins he was buried and he rose again so that all who believe in him are here's that word look at verse 39 justified some of your translations say freed it uses it twice freed from all things freed uh, that that's also the same word maybe your bible says justified and i like that term better to be honest the question how is a sinner justified before god justified meaning how do i have a righteous standing before god how am i declared righteous is the most important question out there that's the most important question there is how can i be made right before a holy god How can I stand before the judge of the universe someday and go free? That's the question. That question is what sparks the first church council in chapter 15. How can a man be justified? That question caused the Reformation 500 years ago. That question is the greatest debate in the church today. That question is the single greatest issue when you witness. How is a man justified? That question, how you answer that question will determine your eternal destiny. How is a man justified? How are we justified? There's a lot of folks out there, and it was on the radio this week, teaching we are justified by works. That grace is something you can earn. If I'm good enough, God will let me into heaven. That's the first approach to justification. If I'm good enough, it's by works. Some teach salvation by grace and works. God does His part, but I've also got to do my part. I've got to do my religious works. I've got to do my good works. I'm going to merit more grace through my works. That's the second approach. The third approach is I'm saved by grace. Through faith in Christ. And that's the light-bearing approach. Lights teach justification by faith in Christ alone. That right there is is what we have to present clearly to people. Witnesses, lights are going to present the gospel clearly. It is a mess out there. I, in fact, I, I, I feel like this is why there's not more, this is why we have such a lack of ministers, like, uh, not, I should say ministers, equippers in the church. Why there's such a lack in the pastoral realm, why there's such a need for pastors, is because there's so much doctrinal confusion out there. No one wants to step into that role. There's, there's so much out there. We, we, we mess up the gospel so much. That's kind of why I want to go through the book of Romans, because Paul makes it so clear. Justification is by faith. It's it's by grace alone, meaning it's free. Jesus paid it all. It's a free gift offered to you. That gift is received by faith, by trusting or believing. Remember, faith, trust, believe. All come from the same word. Faith, trust, believe. And they all mean to to depend on. What are we depending on to save us? If God says, why should I let you into heaven? What are you going to say? I, I'm good. I did those good works. I did a good deed every day. I went to church. I gave money to church. I was baptized. I surrendered and gave God my bank account or my whatever, my personal life. Is that what you're depending on? What are you depending on? What should we depend on? Christ. Because it's Christ alone. Who paid for our sins. That's the one condition. Christ offers salvation as a gift. And we receive it by faith. Faith is not just believing a historical truth about him. That he died for the world. That's what I was taught. I was taught Jesus died for the sins of the world. But I had to work for it, buddy. Through the sacraments. But faith means you're depending upon him to do what He promised. You're depending on Him to give you eternal life based on what He did. Romans 3, real quickly. Remember, we reason and persuade from the Word of God. So here's some final verses. Romans 3.21, the hallmark of pure gospel preaching, but now apart from the law, basically apart from human works, the righteousness of God has been manifested. God has made it evident being witnessed by the law and the prophets. He's saying, even the Old Testament talked about this, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who, who do what? Believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God, and we are justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. He is the just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? Works? Trying to be good enough? He says no, but by a law of faith. For we maintain man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Romans 4, 4-5. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But To him who does not work, but simply believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Pretty clear stuff, huh? If it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, what? Grace is no longer grace. Your definition of grace has to be free, unmerited, unearned, because Jesus paid it all. So if you're here today... I'm going to do my part as a witness. If you're here today, you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior because I care about you. I want you to know that right now you are bound for hell. You are bound for a Christless eternity in hell, which is a place of eternal punishment. I say that because I care about you. John 3, 6, 17 through 18 says, He who does not believe has been judged already because... He has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. You're judged already if you've not trusted in Christ. But it also says, that's not what God desires for you. God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He loves you so much, He sent His only Son so that if you believe in Him, you will have everlasting life. You'll have life now by the Spirit of God who comes into your heart and your life, and you'll have eternal life forever with Him in paradise, and I can't wait for that, and I can't wait to enjoy that with you. So if you would like to receive the gift of eternal life, you might express that to God in a prayer that goes something like this, God, I I know I'm a sinner, I know my sin has broken my relationship with you, but I want that relationship to be restored, and I trust in Jesus alone as my Savior. I'm not going to trust myself. I'm just going to trust in Christ, the one who paid for my sin. And Lord, help me to know you more and to learn to walk with you in Christ. You might pray something like that right where you sit. And remember, it's not the prayer that saves you. It's faith in Christ.